Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 14. Fourteenth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 21 this morning. You know, week in and week out, both here on this campus and throughout the community, there is a lot of very active and important Christian ministry going on. Members of this body are, are busy. You are busy serving the Lord Jesus Christ in many, many venues. And you know, that's how it ought to be. We have been saved, the scripture tells us, in order to serve. It is God's plan for us, saving us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But not that we just sit and stew in that great salvation, but that that salvation moves us, that that gospel moves us to emulate our Savior in service of others. Serving is essential to the Christian life. It is the, it is the outward evidence, one of the outward evidences of a heart that has been redeemed, that has been changed by the Spirit of God. But you know, in, in ministry, we can from time to time lose our way. We can lose our focus. Our priorities can become misplaced. The way we, we go about ministry at times can, can be less than biblical. And when that happens, we, we need a corrective. We need the Word of God to, to come and to, and to call us up short even, to remind us of, of the gospel and the truth of the gospel and and that it impacts the way we serve Christ. And, and the passage before us this morning here is, is one of those passages that provides some really helpful guidance, corrective, in the way you and I go about serving our Savior, both here within the, the community of believers and outside the, this, uh, this local fellowship into our communities at large. So there's some really practical stuff that we're going to look at this morning. And we're looking at, specifically, Matthew's account of the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. And this is, a, this is a unique miracle of our Lord. In fact, this miracle is so unique that, that this miracle, along with the resurrection miracle, are the only two miracles that are reported in all four Gospels. This is so significant that it is reported by all the gospel writers. This event occurs chronologically at the, at the end of the great Galilean campaign, the, the great ministry of about 18 months that Jesus and his disciples conducted throughout Galilee, the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus' popularity at, at this point was as high as it will ever be. The crowds are following him. They're, they're hanging on his every word, although as we will learn, it's not that, they are, that they're being changed, but, but, but he is the best show in town. 
And the miracles that he is, that he is performing are, are so appealing to them that, that the crowds are, are following him. And yet following this miracle, this, this feeding of the 5,000, Jesus' popularity is going to plummet. John's Gospel records that following this event, Jesus preaches his famous bread of life sermon. The result of which is that from that point forward, most of his disciples, most of his followers turn away. The crowds are are significantly narrowed down. And it's all as a a result of this particular event and the the follow-up to it. Now this occurs, the the feeding of the 5,000 occurs at the Passover time, John tells us in his gospel. It occurs at the Passover season. Jesus will have one more year of life on this earth left following this. Because by the next Passover, he will be hanging on a Roman cross. So this is the pinnacle, this is the peak, at least from an outward point of view. From, down, from here, it will be downhill. We, we talked about this for a number of weeks now. He will be frantically, almost at times, it seems, attempting to get alone to prepare his disciples for the reality that he is now going to die in a year, in a year's time. But I want to focus this morning on the event and primarily Matthew's accounting of the event here in verses 13 through 21. And, and as we do, there are some lessons, actually three lessons, that I want to point to you. Three lessons that we can learn from Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. Lessons that should undergird all Christian ministry endeavors. So since we are saved to serve, since it is an oxymoron to to claim to be a a follower of Jesus Christ and not be in service of the Lord, the message is applicable to everyone. Everyone. Three very, very important lessons that need to undergird our Christian ministry endeavors. So that's where we're going this morning. So the first lesson we find in, in verses 13 through 15, and the lesson is this. We should respond to human need with compassion, not indifference. We should respond to human need with compassion and not indifference. Let's pick it up here in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Stop there. The news of John's death, reported by Matthew here in verses 1 through 12 in the, in the form of a historical flashback, his arrest and, and then his, his execution, comes to Jesus, it says in verse 12, the, the disciples of John, after they take away the body and, and give it a proper Jewish burial, they come and they report to Jesus what has happened. That his forerunner has been brutally executed by the Roman authorities. At the same time, Mark tells us in his gospel, in Mark chapter 6 and verse 30, that, that the disciples arrived back and, and 
pretty sure that this event is, is happening here in Capernaum on the North Shore, the Sea of Galilee. The disciples arrived back from the preaching tour that they had previously been sent on to all the villages in and around the, the north part of the Sea of Galilee. So these twin events occur at the same time. Jesus gets the news that John the Baptist has been executed and that Herod uh, has, um, has erroneously concluded that, that Jesus' ministry is, is John the Baptist come back from the dead and, and Herod is, is very much frightened by all of that and takes an interest in Jesus at a greater level than he ever has previously. And so Jesus knows, based on John's death, that the end is soon to come, that Herod is, is a, has a heightened interest to, in him. His disciples arrive back from their preaching tour, and they're exhausted. And so it's at this time that Jesus decides it's time to get away for some spiritual R&R. It's time to withdraw from the crowds. And that's exactly what Matthew tells us. He hears about these things, and he withdraws from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Now, when it says by himself, we, we understand from Mark's account of this that the, that the by himself includes his 12 disciples with him. So it's the, it's the band together. Luke tells us, Luke 9 and verse 10, specifically where the secluded place is, so we don't have to guess. And Luke says it's the region of Bethsaida, which is on the, on the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you'll remember back a few weeks to the maps, that by moving to the, to the area of Bethsaida, they move out of Herod's political control and territory, and they cross into that of Philip the Tetrarch. So it's strategic. It's not just that Jesus wants to be alone. He does. But he, but he needs to move out away from the the heat of Herod. And so he crosses the political boundary, he moves into the district and area of, of Philip the Tetrarch, and, and there he is, he is looking to find some seclusion, some, some time to rest, some time for, for spiritual R&R. But it's not to be had. Verse 13, And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. Now, how they heard about this, the text doesn't tell us. Perhaps they just kind of overheard them talking about, we need to get away. Let's get a boat and let's, let's head over, you know, let's head east and uh, we'll set ashore. And then there's, it's, it's more mountainous on, on that part of the sea and, and we can find a place to get alone. So maybe it's just that they overheard him. We don't, we don't really know. But what we do know is that, is that the people followed them on foot. What that means is, is, is that they kind of raced around the, the north part of the sea, about two miles north of Capernaum at the, the, the fords of the, of the Jordan River. There's a place for them to cross over. And so that's exactly what they do. And they, and they you know, Jesus and the disciples are going across the water and and. And the crowds are, are kind of running along the top of the lake, chasing him. And, and actually, they're not, they're not only chasing him, they're going to get there before him. So it gives you kind of an idea that, that they are motivated to be with him. They're motivated. Now, it's a big crowd. 
We'll learn later it's, it's 5,000 plus. This is a big crowd of people. And, it, and it's likely that this, this crowd has, has been augmented or, or supplemented or swelled, if you like, by, by the pilgrims that have come in from all of the villages of, of Galilee in that area, coming together to make the trek down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. John says the season of the Passover is at hand. One of the three feasts of Israel that, that all males were required to, to be in attendance at is the Passover. So there's a big crowd of people, more than just those that, that live right there in Capernaum and its environs. And, and this crowd would have, been, would have been charged up, would have been excited, because just prior to that, there had been this massive preaching ministry going on by Jesus' 12 disciples, right? They'd gone out two by two to all the villages and, and towns and cities of this whole area. So the message has been widely spread. Miracles have been happening all over the place. It's the season of the Passover. This is a high point in the Jewish calendar. There's a lot of religious fervor building up there among the people. And so Jesus... He's trying to get away and, and, and to get alone, and the crowd is absolutely chasing him. And, and they figure out where he's going, and they, and they run to get there ahead of him, and, and the faster ones actually get there. They get there ahead. Verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. You almost get the picture that you know, as they're running, they're looking out over the water and ju sort of judging the distance of the boat and, uh, you know, turning on the jets to get there. Now, the whole crowd doesn't get there at one time. Because when he comes ashore, we'll, we'll talk about it here in a minute, but, but there's a lot of healings that go on. And so there are, there are a lot of people who are sick and lame and, and uh, deformed and, and those sorts of things. They're not, you know, doing this. So there's fast ones. And then there are others who are being brought along, and it's easy to understand. Family members would have, would have uh, carried with them or brought with them on pallets and so forth those that were sick and ill and injured and that they might all get close to this healer. Furthermore, as, as the people are making, making time to, to get there, you, you kind of get the idea that you know they're running through the villages and uh, people say where are you going and they yell over their shoulder you know going to see you know the prophet going to see the one called Jesus and come on and, and so the crowd just continues to swell and to pick up so they get there it's a big crowd the big crowd, and, and it continues to, I think what it's kind of implying to us is that it continues to build throughout the day. So when he gets ashore, verse 14, he sees a large crowd. A large crowd. Now what happens next is, is just amazing. I mean, Jesus, right, verse 13, he's, he's looking to get to a secluded place. He gets to what he hopes to be the secluded place, and there's a welcoming committee. And it's a big one. And notice how he responds. Notice how he responds. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them and healed they're sick. 
instantly, all of his plans, and by the way, Jesus didn't do anything, I don't believe, without planning it out. He's not a random kind of guy. So he had, he had planned this spiritual retreat, this getaway time. And yet, when, when he arrives at the retreat center, there's a big crowd there. And so he immediately shelves his plans, just puts them away, and, and begins to minister to the crowds that have arrived. He felt compassion for them, it says. He healed their sick, it says. The text uh, indicates that it's not he healed one or two or three or four. He healed their sick, all their sick. You can just imagine the, 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 the lines of people lining up to get close to him. One after another, and he, and he is standing there, speaking or touching healing kinds of disease and sickness. Mark tells us in his parallel account that, that Jesus is also teaching the crowd. So he's, he's not just standing there saying, be healed, be healed, be healed, be healed. You know, why don't you all be healed? This is personal ministry. And he's teaching them at the same time. He's preaching to them. Luke fills it out a little more. He says specifically in Luke chapter 9 and verse 11 that he is, he is preaching and teaching on the kingdom of God. He's teaching about the kingdom of God. Now this is remarkable, I think. I think it's remarkable at many, many levels. Not the least of which is, is that these are the people, at least some of them, from the cities on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee that Jesus has earlier said that, you know, you are so hard of heart, it is going to be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment for you. You have had so much truth given to you, and yet you have turned a blind eye to it. You have put your, your fingers in your ears, as it were. It would be very easy to, to, to understand Jesus, to just say, hey, you know what? You've had your chance. I'm out of here. Get back in a boat. You know, let's keep moving. If we get a good tailwind, we can outrun them. But that's not his approach. It's not his approach. John will, will flesh it out, right? I mean, the next day he'll travel back to Capernaum. There will be the Bread of Life sermon. And, and Jesus is going to say to them, John 6 and 26, that they're following him not because of who he is, but because he can feed them. The most crass of motives. This is the crowd. This is the crowd. And yet he has compassion on them. Again, Mark says, Mark 6 and 34, they are like a sheep without a shepherd. Like a sheep without a shepherd. He, is, he has compassion upon them. And so what does he do? He postpones his own need for physical rest. I mean, during the preaching tour where he, had, where he had sent out, you know, beginning in Matthew 10, 1, he had sent out the disciples two by two. It says in Matthew 11, 1, that Jesus himself, while he had sent the disciples out to one area, he was preaching in, in the villages at Capernaum and others where they had come from. So it's not like he had been sitting back, you know, sipping an iced tea, 
while he had sent them out to do the work. He's preaching, they're preaching, they're, they're ministering constantly. The, the, the preaching campaign ends. He gets the news that, that, that Herod has executed the forerunner. And he is absolutely exhausted. He wants some rest. It's legitimate desire and need for some rest. He wants some privacy at the same time. He, needs, he wants to be alone with his father. We'll see that uh, next, next week at least. Because he's going to go up on the mountain by himself to pray. He wants alone time with his father. He wants to minister to his, his disciples. They are exhausted, Mark tells us. And yet, the crowd is there, the need is there, and he pours himself into it. He pours himself into it. And it, and it is such a vivid contrast with the prevailing attitude of his disciples. We'll see that in verse 15. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate, and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now the word translated evening here is, a, is an interesting word. It's a flexible word. It, 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 it applies to a, to a range of time. It, can, it actually can refer to any period of time from, say, mid-afternoon on to beyond sunset. That's all would be within the realm of the, of the word used for evening here. So it, it refers to the later part of the day. Here in, in verse 15, it likely refers to kind of the mid-afternoon, maybe 3 o'clock, something like that. You see it in verse 23, same day it's used there. It says it was evening, he was alone, the end of verse 23. There it's speaking about the time after sundown. So it's a, a flexible period of time. But, but this, what's about to happen here is probably kind of mid-afternoon-ish. And the disciples, they are, they are eminently practical in this whole thing. Because they're, they're sort of standing there and observing what's going on. And it's been going on for hours now. And, uh, and nobody's taking any initiative to sort of wind this thing up. And so they come to him and they, and they point out to him two very obvious facts. Jesus, can, can we talk to you for a minute? <clears throat> this place is remote. This, this place is remote. There's like nothing around us. Did you, did you know that? Did you see that? It's getting late. It's getting late in the day. You know, the sun's starting to move on the horizon. We're going to have a problem here. And the problem is, is um, I don't know where they're going to get anything to eat. So our advice to you is to, like, finish the altar call and send them home. <laughs> Wind this thing down. Be, be, so that, you know, so that they can, 
they can find something to eat so that they can fan out, verse, the end of verse 15, so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. I mean, it's obvious. Whatever they brought with them, it's gone. There's nothing to eat. And this is a big crowd, a very big crowd. I might add that uh, I think it's probably likely the disciples are hungry too. You know? Been a long day. It's time for somebody to turn out the lights. Time for somebody to turn out the lights. Time to send them home. Beloved, I, I can identify with this. Can you? Can you identify with this? You ever, ever find yourself in a place where, uh, well, I don't know, maybe you've uh, invited someone over to your home for you know, ministry, fellowship, and, and, um, and you find yourself thinking, when are these people ever going to go home? Now, I've never felt that way about any of you. Just, just saying. Maybe you felt that way about me. This is a very, very natural human response. Very natural. And what it, what it reveals is that often uh, we minister on our own terms. That we, that we minister to God's people on our own terms and according to our own convenience rather than according to their needs. And when I began to think about that, <laughs> it was like a dagger in the heart. Like a dagger in the heart. Can we get together? Sure. But not now. I'm tired. I'm busy. I'm I got plans. How often we approach ministry that way. I'll do it when it's convenient. Some, uh, some years ago, and I'm not proud of this, but sort of illustrate this, but some years ago, uh, there was a church fellowship activity in the evening here. And it had been a long day, and my feet hurt from standing a good bit of the day. But the hour was growing late, and, and uh, nobody was leaving. And so I flickered the lights. <laughs> I'm not proud of that. Because what it really revealed is, is that my, my convenience level had run out. My, my compassion tank was empty. What it revealed is really I was ministering in the flesh at that point, which is no ministry at all. And I just wanted everybody to get out of here. I had, I had allowed my own comfort, my own agenda, my own whatever you want to call it, 
to, to supersede. And, and at that point in time, I was not ministering out of compassion at all. It was pure indifference. Pure indifference. It's, it's easy to minister when we're well-rested. It's, it's easy to minister when, when it's convenient, when it, when it fits our calendar. The challenge is to minister when it's not. The challenge is, is to, to minister when our love for comfort is being directly confronted by the needs of God's people. When our natural resources have been drained, that's when it gets put to the test. That's when it gets put to the test. So ask yourself a question. When you minister, is it out of convenience? Meaning that you're ministering in indifference, or is it out of compassion? How will you know? What happens when ministry confronts your legitimate needs? I mean, the, the Messiah needs time alone. He, he is man, yea, very man, and, and he is exhausted. And he has legitimate ministry purpose in being alone, and yet... He has compassion on those who are like sheep without a shepherd. And he puts away his agenda and allows their agenda to take over his agenda so that he can minister to them. I think it's, a, I think it's one of those lessons that, that just continually needs to be driven home. I know it needs to be driven home in my heart, and I trust that it may need to be driven home in yours. First lesson, we should respond to human need with compassion, not indifference. Second. Second lesson from this account is we should minister in faith, not doubt. We should minister in faith, not doubt. So they have come to Jesus and they have, they have said, listen, there, there's nothing to eat. This place is so remote, it's getting late in the day. Dismiss the crowds, let them go out into the villages, let them see if they can find anything to eat. I mean, it's obvious what needs to happen here. And yet Jesus rejects it. He rejects their advice. Do you see it in verse 16? He said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. You can't just pass off the problem. You give them something to eat. I can only imagine the look on their face. Right? I can only imagine the look on their face. They've got a, they've got a, a, a plan. They've got, it's, it's logical. It's reasonable. He just, he just rejects it. Their, their quick solution, the quick fix, no. No. And in, the, and in the process of doing that, when he says, you give them something to eat, he is inviting them to think more seriously. 
about this whole situation and ultimately about him. He wants them to think more about who he really is. And I say, I can only imagine the look on their faces when he says that. You know, jaw drops. And again, I'm not, I'm not speculating in this because uh, the other Gospels really help add a little color along the, the sides. And by the way, uh, John says specifically that Jesus says this because he was testing them. John 6, verses 5 and 6. This is not a random thing. He says, no, we're not going to send them away. You feed them. This is a test. This is a test. How do they do? Not well. Philip, ever the pragmatist, he uh, responds, according to John 6 again, and Philip says, Jesus, six months' wages is not enough to buy the food that's necessary to feed this crowd. Implication, we don't have six months' wages. That's helpful. Thank you. Then you got hopeful Andrew. He, he kind of comes up, and I, I see it sort of maybe even a little bit timid, but, but he brings up this little boy by the hand. Again, John, John tells us this. He brings up this little boy, and he says, this boy's got lunch. He's got, he's got his own lunch, and uh, he's willing to share it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Matthew sort of aggregates it all in verse 17. They, that is, uh, you know, the 12. John gives individual responses, but aggregated here in, in 17. They said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. They got the boys' lunch. It's interesting to see how the response begins, by the way. It begins by uh, speaking about the slenderness of their resources. Literally, it says here, uh, we have nothing here except lunch. Loaves. We have here five, only five loaves, verse 17. Loaves, little, uh, little round flat breads. Made of barley, we're told. The other counts. I think it's John said they're barley. Barley loaves. Those are, that's the food of the poor. This is a poor boy with a poor boy's lunch. Not a poor boy, but a poor boy. Okay. So it's, it's little round barley cakes. Tortillas. And two fish. Little, little salted fish, a little bit bigger than sardines. I got, I got a couple of sardines and five tortillas. That's our resources. I mean, it's ridiculous. Right? When, when, when focused in that direction, when, when looking at their natural resources, it is absolutely ridiculous. Well, what's wrong with the picture? What's wrong with the picture? I mean, I mean, given the resources, the pessimism seems very, very natural and logical, don't you think? But here's what's wrong with the picture. What's wrong with the picture is, is that it reveals the disciples' approach to the problem is constrained by their own earthbound thinking. 
Their eyes are, are, are down, not up. They're looking around at their own meager resources and they're saying there is absolutely no way to resolve this problem that Jesus, you have now made our problem. We gave you an answer, you refused it, you push it back onto us and we're telling you we got a couple of sardines and some tortillas and we don't know what we're going to do. Beloved, this is, this is such amazing insight into spiritual blindness. The blindness of the human heart, of believing human hearts. These are, these are the close ones. These are, these are the ones who the next day, the end of John 6, and when everyone else leaves, and he's going to say to them, are you going to leave me too? They're going to say, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is the committed group. The committed group. This is the A team. And this is a team of people, by the way, if you would have asked them in, in a separate situation and you would have, you would have said, is, um, could Jesus uh, do some kind of a miracle here? They likely would answer yes. I mean, certainly if they had remembered just two years before when he was at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, right? You remember that. The wine runs out for the, for the feast. And so Jesus turns 150 gallons of water into the finest wine. Not now. All they can see is their own inadequate resources. They are blinded. It never even occurs to them to ask Jesus for help. It is, it is so amazing. I mean, what has he been doing all day long? Healing disease and sickness. Restoring withered limbs. Likely adding back missing body parts. Yet they're, they're wrapped in their own little world of doubt. And they cannot see beyond the tortillas and the sardines. They just can't see. And how like us they are. How like us they are. How quick you and I are to say God will provide, right? Oh, don't worry. God will provide. We're good at, by the way, giving that advice to everybody else. Did you ever notice that? Our theology is impeccable when we speak to others. It's heretical when we, you know, Oh, don't worry. You don't lose your job. Don't worry. God will provide. God will provide. How quick we are to doubt. How quick we are to doubt. Hey, we have a testimony of the Word of God. The Scriptures are replete with, with both example and and. Precept, statement that God will provide. Paul says that the Philippians, right? Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And by the way, that is in the context of physical need. Paul says that the Philippian church, do not worry, God will take care of you physically. 
It's all over the scriptures. Beyond that, we have our own personal testimony or experience with the love of God, don't we? Has God provided for you in the past? Has he not cared for you in the most amazing ways? In the midst of situations that looked like there was no way out? No earthly way out, and yet God sees you through. I know it's your testimony. So we have it in the Word of God. We have it, we have it in our own personal life experience, and yet how prone we are to forget it. And that's exactly what has happened here. They have lost sight. They are, they are consumed in doubt. God meets our needs. Whatever those needs are. Personally and, and ministry-wise, God provides. But when we focus, and this is our problem, we focus on our own inadequate human resources. We begin to look at our limited abilities. Ah, I could never do that. Or we, or we, we focus on our, our shortage in finances. Oh, we could never do that. We got no money. Or, or we, we, we focus on our stamina. You know, I, oh boy, I, I don't know if I could do that. Tired all the time. Or time, you know, I'm busy. I just, I don't know how I could possibly do this. My life is so busy. Doubt, 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 doubt. And you're right. When we focus on what we don't have, we'll never do anything. And when that happens, we are ministering in doubt, not faith. But it's when we remember that, that God delights in ministering through our weakness, right? He ministers through our weakness. Why? So that he receives all the glory. That's how he has organized the universe. Do you know that? He will not share his glory with another. But it's when we minister through our weakness in faith and then look out, all kinds of amazing things happen. It's easy to forget. Very, very, very easy to forget. It's easy to, for us to forget as a body here. Our, our congregational memory is not what it ought to be. So permit me to take just a few minutes and provide some memory joggers for us. Can I do that? So I'm, this week I was, I was just thinking back over the last nine years. I just looked back over nine years and, and began to think about what God has done by His grace through His people in this little fellowship called Foothill Bible Church in Upland, California. And it's amazing. It is amazing. He has and is saving people. Men, women, boys, girls. Drawing them out of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We have seen baptisms and lots of them. As God's people have responded in, in faith and obedience to the Word of God. There are multiplied illustrations of, of men and women, boys and girls, growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ. There is all kinds of disciple-making going on. 
It's often not programmatic. It's often below the radar. And you know what? I like it that way. I think it's fantastic because, it, because there's body life happening. Some of them gave testimony just at the beginning of the year, and, and we could parade another dozen up here. Stuff's happening. People ministering in faith, not doubt. We have a growing impact in our local community. There was a time when that was not true, but, it, but it's growing. It's growing. By the grace of God, we planted two churches domestically in the last nine years. We've had one family released to serve full-time with the Awana ministry. We sent out an individual and a family from our midst to support church planting internationally. We've partnered with local churches in the support of four families that are doing church planting internationally, three of whom in our close countries. Stuff's happening. When people begin to minister out of faith and not doubt. But beloved, I, I think the best is yet to come. I think the best is yet to come. I don't, I don't think that we've, we've crested, we've peaked. I think as we begin to understand more and more of who God is and how God works and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the sky is the limit for what he can and will do for people who will attempt great things for him. The danger for us is we take our eyes off. Right? We say one of our core values is, is daring to minister by faith. The, the, the enemy of that is when we take our eyes off Christ and, and look at our own meager resources and then doubts fill our heart. We become paralyzed and we go nowhere. We go nowhere. Third. Third lesson. Verses 18 to 21. We should remember Jesus is sovereign, not impotent. And this really kind of plays into the second reason, faith, not doubt. It's not faith in our abilities. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in Christ, a Christ who is sovereign and not impotent. Verse 18, or verse 17, we've got five loaves and two fish. Jesus says, bring them here to me. What I want you to see here is, is in, the, in verses 18 and 19, how it's all Jesus. Okay? As he takes over the situation here. Bring them here to me. Bring me what you got. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish, looking up toward heaven. He blessed the food and breaking the loaves. He gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. Jesus completely takes over the situation. They have, they have failed the exam. Now it's time for a remedial school. Okay, so summer school is going to happen here. What you should have done is you should have come to me and said, Jesus, we have no ability to do this, but we believe that you are Messiah, King of Israel, and that you can care for your people. 
In fact, in John's gospel, it's, it's teased out in the, in the bread of life sermon the next day, right? Moses provided manna, they says, and Jesus says, no, it was God who provided manna. You believe who I am? Then come and ask. But he completely takes it over. And what he does here is, is one of the most amazing displays of creative power, sovereign creative power, I think you find on the pages of the New Testament. This is absolutely stunning what happens. And because it is so stunning, the, the anti-supernaturalists, they cannot handle it. You should, it it's amazing. i got bunches of commentaries on my shelves, but you take them down and you start to read and, and I'll tell you, the gymnastics that people go through in order to try to explain away the clear text is absolutely incredible. Incredible. So there are some that say, just to kind of give you a little flavor for this, there's some that say there was a cave there. And the cave was stocked with food. And so what Jesus was doing is he was reaching behind him into the cave and bringing out the food and giving it to the disciples and they were passing it out. Or, or how about this one? The real miracle here, this is what one, one writes, the real miracle here is the change in people's hearts brought on by the generosity of the little boy. See, the little boy shared his lunch. Everybody saw that, and they realized they should share too. And so there was a miracle that happened as everybody, instead of being selfish and hoarding their food, they, they began to share it with one another, and there was more than enough. Does that sound nice? Sounds nice. Or here, or here was another one. Everybody only got a crumb. <laughs> okay? Just a crumb. But they were spiritually filled. Be, be, because it was the first communion meal. Isn't that one sweet? Oh. What a bunch of nonsense. That is, that is ridiculous. It, the text is exceedingly clear. Exceedingly clear. The one who spoke the universe into existence exercised his sovereign power in order to create food out of these fragments of food in order to more than satisfy what was needed. This is, this is, a, this is a creation order miracle. This is, this is raw sovereignty on display. In other words, you could, you could say it like this. As the disciples were, were going around, it says he broke them, right? He, he broke the food and he blessed it. He handed it to them and, and they're taking it around. And as they're distributing, and he had them sit down, by the way. We're told he has them sit in groups of 50s and 100s. So there, as they're taking them around to, to serve the food and they're handing it out, it continually being regenerated in the, in the basket or whatever it is that they're handing it out in. Reminds me, by the way, in, uh, in uh, 2 Kings, you just mark it down, check it out on yourself, 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, where there was a widow who, uh, who was in desperate need and she had a little jar of oil. Do you remember this? And Elisha the prophet uh, says, hey, get all your neighbors and uh, get every empty vessel you can get. And so they bring in all these empty vessels and she's pouring out of this little, little jar of oil and she's filling up these, these vessels, I mean, gallons of this stuff. And she keeps pouring and pouring out of this little, you know, this little jar here. And, and, and as every vessel that comes, she fills it up, and it's out of the same jar. And the oil, you know, God is just, 
just continuing to create oil until, until there are no more empty jars and then it says the flow stopped. That's the idea here. He's just continuing to create food. And as long as there's hunger, he's continuing to create food. Look at verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied. It's really interesting here. The, the, the significance is found in the word satisfied. Very interesting word. It means to have more than enough. In fact, it's a word that is, that is primarily used of fattening cattle. In the vernacular, we would say, they were stuffed. They all ate and were stuffed. Okay? So how about the crumb, you know, spiritually filled? Eh. Phooey. It was, oh, can't eat another bite. Absolutely filled. Verse 21, there were, there were about 5,000 men, it says, who ate, besides women and children. The, the scope of this miracle is incredible. It's incredible. 5,000 men. You add in women, you add in children, you're in the realm of fifteen to 20,000 people. That's like going to Angel Stadium. A typical baseball game, and you know, there's the crowd. He feeds them all. Out of a few tortillas and a couple of sardines. It's astounding. I skipped over, by the way, verse 20, and I did that intentionally. It says they all ate and were stuffed. End of verse 20, they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. Why? Why did he create more than enough? Why did he create 12 baskets full? Full baskets. Some say that the, it's to teach us that we're not supposed to waste. That's weak sauce. I mean, if that's the best you can get, that's weak sauce. No. Now, here it is. It's an object lesson. It's an object lesson. He does not want his 12 disciples to ever forget this. And so he provides them all with a doggy bag. You know, a, a takeaway, as they say in other cultures. You know, that's where you go to a, a restaurant, you had a fantastic meal, right? And, and there's more than enough to eat, and so they package it up for you, you take it home, and the next day you can eat it, and as you're eating the next day, what are you remembering? It tasted way better when they served it the first day. <laughs> it's usually what I'm remembering. But it, but it provides an objective lesson. It, it, it causes you to reflect upon the prior meal, and, and that's exactly what he's doing here. He is giving each of the 12 disciples a very tangible remembrance of this spectacular display. Now, how do I know all of this? I know all of this because uh, if you turn over a couple of chapters in Matthew's Gospel, the chapter 16, that's exactly what he says to them.
Pick it up in verse 5. And, and the disciples came to the other side of the sea, and they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began to discuss among themselves, saying, he said this because we didn't bring any bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many full baskets you picked up? Stop there. Because we haven't dealt with the other miracles, so I don't want to read about it yet. I'll spoil the suspense. Right? You idiots. Your faith is like the size of a pin. And he could be talking to me and you. Hey, pin faith. Remember the, remember the, the doggy bag you took home? Not that long ago. Why are you worried? I am the sovereign one. I spoke and the universe came into existence. I feed my people, not a crumb, until they are stuffed. I can and will provide everything you need, everything you need. You must believe. You must believe. You must give yourself to me. Give yourself to me. Put yourself in my hands. Depend upon me. Beloved, that's, a, that's the essence of what it means to know and love the Savior. It's to rest entirely on Him. Even when the circumstances around us say doubt, 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 doubt. Three lessons this morning. Three lessons God would have for us. Lessons that ought to undergird all of our Christian ministry endeavors. Three lessons. Respond to human need with compassion and not indifference. Minister in faith, not doubt. And remember, Jesus is sovereign, not impotent. And as we go about making, maturing, and multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ, if, if we can get a hold of these things and build ministry on this, there is no stopping what the Spirit of God can and will do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, um, this account and, and um, just for using it to really dig deep into our hearts. Cause us to look inside and evaluate even our own motives. It says in the book of Hebrews that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and it, and it can divide at that level. It lays us open. And yet the word of God that wounds is also the word of God that heals. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his atoning death and resurrection by which we can share the life of God. Life everlasting. Reconciled back to you. Able to call you Abba Father. Oh, strengthen our faith even this day. We pray in Jesus' name.